Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a number of questions that you have emailed in that we're going to cover today. Questions like, does God direct people to lie? If you read 1 Samuel 16, you might go, oh yeah, it sure does. How, How can that be right? Another question, how can I pray for my daughter who now claims to be bisexual and I live 500 miles from her? What can I do? Another question, if Jesus refers to God as his father and God refers to Jesus as his son, how can Jesus be God? We're going to get to those questions in a minute or a few minutes from now. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about that Supreme Court decision which found that a Christian cannot be compelled against her will to design a website for uh, a same-sex marriage or any kind of any kind of message that she feels is against her faith or against her conscience. And I've been saying this for a long time that that shouldn't be. Uh, done that the state should not be able to compel anyone or anyone should not be able to compel you to say something or do something that is against your deeply held religious or moral beliefs that would go against conscience and my friend dr michael brown wrote a a column on this i think it came out on let's see that would be july 3rd And it's over at stream.org. By the way, stream is a great place for good Christian content, stream.org. Whenever I write a column, which is only a few times a year, I have to get annoyed to write a column. I normally uh, send it to them and they'll post it. This one is called Questions for Those Who Differ with the Supreme Court Decision in Favor of a Christian Graphic Artist. And uh, in this article or this column, Dr. Brown asks a number of questions. And here are some of the questions he asks. Should a gay web designer be compelled by the state to design a website for a counseling service that helps people overcome same-sex attractions? Should an Orthodox Jewish web designer be compelled by the state to design a website for Jews for Jesus? Should an atheist web designer be compelled by the state to design a website called Answering Atheism? Should a trans-identified web designer be compelled by the state to design a website on the dangers of hormone therapy and sex change surgery? Should a Muslim web designer be compelled by the state to design a website for a meat service specializing in pork products? Should an African-American web designer be compelled by the state to design a website selling Confederate flags? Should a Christian website designer be compelled by the state to design an adultery hookup website? Should any web designer be uh, compelled by the state to design a pornography website? Should a state be compelled or a state should a state be able to compel a, say, Democrat web designer to create a pro-Trump content for a Republican lobbyist or a content stating that he won the 2020 elections? 
Dr. Brown says to answer to all those questions is obvious. None of these people should be compelled to create content that violates their beliefs or convictions. The state clearly has no right to compel them to do so. And then he adds to it when he says, and what about a gay T-shirt uh, company? I've, I've used this example many times myself. Should they be compelled by the state to design a T-shirt with the words, God does not recognize same-sex marriage? Should a Christian-owned printing company be compelled by the state to design flyers for a Satan conference? The list goes on and on, and in every case, the answer is an obvious no. Exactly. Whether you identify as LGBTQ or Christian or anywhere in between, the state has no right to compel you to put forth messages that you disagree with. And that's what the Supreme Court found in a 6-3 decision, rightfully so. Now, here is, again, where people who voted for policy over personality are vindicated. Yes, I understand we all know Trump does not have a lovable personality. And uh, in many cases, he is obnoxious. But when you look at the policies that the Republicans were putting forth in 2016 and 2020. They were policies like this one that said people had religious freedom. And so when you voted for policy over personality, when you held your nose and said, I might not like the guy, but I like the policies he's behind, I think you were doing the right thing because this is the outcome you got. Imagine if there were three liberals on the court and they said 6-3, no, the state does or can compel you to do these things. That obviously would be against the United States Constitution. It would also be against the freedom of religion. It would also be against freedom of conscience. But there are three people on the Supreme Court right now who think that you don't have the freedom of religion or the freedom of conscience and that the state can compel you against your will to support ideas that you disagree with. So, yes, we, we're going to have another election now in about 18 months or so, and you're going to have to make that same call again. Whoever the nominee is on each side, you're going to be compelled, or at least I hope you're compelled, to vote policy over personality. I hope you're compelled to say, I'm going to vote for the not just the one person at the top of the ticket, but the 5,000 people that come with that person and the platform that comes with that person. Because even most people in Congress will vote according to the platform. So when this comes up again, we're going to read the, the, the platforms again. We've done it in the past here on this program. And we're going to say, here's what the Republicans stand for. Here's what the Democrats stand for. What lines up best with biblical and natural law values? And you ought to vote those values regardless of who's at the top of the ticket. Unless you think the person at the top of the ticket is, you know, going to going to nuke somebody and you think that's going to be the end of the world. OK, well, then maybe you'd go. I'll just sit, sit this one out or vote vote third party. In any event, I came across a, a headline. Uh, that uh, just a random headline that I thought is, of course, indicative of what we've said on this program many times before, that all laws legislate morality, that everyone's trying to impose a moral position. There's no such thing as moral neutrality. Here, here's the headline. 
Biden administration spends nearly $50,000 to normalize transgender ideology in India. All right, let me stop right here. Okay, I'm not going to go into the details of this. But these are the same people that will, will on one hand, say imperialism is wrong. You know, that we're, we're, we're supposed to respect other cultures. Oh, really? We're supposed to respect other cultures? And why are you trying to impose this predominantly Western and white ideology that came up 15 minutes ago in human civilization on other, country, on other cultures? Why are you trying to do this? Because it's not morally neutral when you do this. It's actually claiming that you have the right moral position and you want to impose that on even people outside this country. Well, if that's the case, if you do have the right morality, the right values that ought to be imposed around the world, by what standard are you coming to this morality? Transgender ideology is good and right according to who? According to you? According to the United States? According to the people in government right now? But that's just using power. That's not appealing to a real standard outside yourselves. Everyone's trying to legislate or promote a morality. The only question is whose morality. And I don't want to legislate my morality. I don't want to legislate your morality. I want to legislate the morality. The one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. The one the Apostle Paul said, the Gentiles and I have the law of the law written on their hearts. Look, I didn't make, I didn't make this morality up. It's not my morality. I didn't make up the fact that murder is wrong, that abortion is wrong, that rape is wrong, that theft is wrong, that it's wrong to mutilate children and take and, and chop off their genitals. I didn't make this. I didn't make up the fact that men were made for women and women were made for men. And the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to legally recognize the man-woman marriage over any other relationship in society. I didn't make any of this stuff up. It's not my morality. It just happens to be the morality. And if you if you don't if you have a problem with the morality, you really don't have a problem with me because I didn't make it up. You have a problem with the creator upon whose nature this morality is derived. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created and endowed by their government. No, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and governments are instituted among men to secure rights. That's what governments do. They don't give you your rights. They simply secure them. That's what they're supposed to do. Now, when they don't secure your rights, according to Jefferson and the rest of the, Dec the Declaration of Independence, the people have a right to a new government. And that's what independence was all about. And that's what we just celebrated last week, year 247. But when we have people in government claiming that they have the right to force us to do something which is clearly against conscience, which is clearly against the God-given morality, then we no longer have independence. Now, thankfully, there were six reasonable people on the court who knew what the First Amendment means and what it meant when it was written down and governed accordingly, applied that law accordingly. Yet there were three of them that thought, oh, no, Oh, no, we can we can force you to do something against your will. We can force you to promote a message that actually goes against your conscience. Now, that sword cuts both ways, as Dr. Michael Brown points out. So you're going to say that a, a gay T-shirt maker has to then make T-shirts that say God does not recognize same-sex marriage? No, of course you wouldn't say that. 
you would say, oh, no, 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 the gay T-shirt maker doesn't need to do it, but the Christian needs to promote messages that support same-sex marriage. No. See, tolerance is a one-way street for many people. That's part of the problem. All right. And by the way, of course, the 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 other decision which said that affirmative action can no longer be used in college and university admissions was the right decision because that's what the Constitution says. That's what the laws of America say. You ought not be using race as a weapon. You ought not be discriminating by race. Now, hopefully, and I've read some articles since this decision, this is going to at least reduce, if not completely eliminate, the use of race in employers, in in the corporate America, and it should. You don't defeat old racism by introducing new racism. That's not the solution. Racism is racism either way it goes. Again, the people on the court, six to three, realized that the Constitution and the laws of America do not allow us to discriminate according to race. So thankfully, they came to the right decision there as well. And hopefully, this will bleed over into the corporate world and we will get rid of this, this wokeism, at least to a partial extent, that is infecting the corporate world. By the way, I had some great interviews recently. Some of you may have seen the interview I had with Dave Rubin uh, down in Miami. As you know, Dave uh, identifies as gay, yet he's open to having conversations about everything, including Christianity. And that's what we talked about on his program. If you go to the Rubin Report YouTube channel, you can see our discussion. And I'm going to have Dave on this program uh, in a few weeks, so keep your uh, keep your ears out for that. Uh, we'll we'll talk to Dave Rubin. I also did a a podcast with Elisa Childers, one with Natasha Crane that will be released soon, and one that was just released today. We're July 11th right now, which happens to be my second grandson's first birthday. Happy birthday, Charlie! Um, we just did one that was released today with Eric Metaxas. Uh, the great Eric Metaxas, who wrote a great book. We had him on the program for it about a year ago called Letter to the American Church. You may want to check that out. And all that, by the way, was to promote uh, the third edition of Correct Not Politically Correct about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. If you go to Amazon and you can't find it there because it's uh, it's temporarily out of stock, you can go to crossexamine.org, click on store. You'll find it there. We will send you the book. Uh, Amazon is getting a new, brand new shipment of books, but they take forever to update sometimes their inventory. So just keep your eye out. If you can't find it at Amazon, you can get it at crossexamine.org. All right, let's go to your questions. And Matt writes, Matt from Iowa writes in, he says, Frank, there is a precedent. God, there's a precedent for God-directed line. He goes to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, in fact, let's read the passage here. This is 1 Samuel 16, and the context here is, is that God has had it with Saul as the king of Israel, and uh, he wants to install a new king, so he tells Samuel, the prophet, to go anoint a new king. And, and here's what uh, the passage says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. And be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. 
Jesse, of course, the father of David, among other sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint me. You are, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Imagine that. You see this prophet coming and they're trembling. So they trembled when they met him and they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Concentrate or consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And it goes on to say that he ultimately uh, consecrates and anoints David as the new king of Israel. And so Samuel says, uh, Samuel was scared that Saul would hear he was going to anoint another. So God said, just lie about why you were going. Is that really what happens here? Well, there's a difference between lying and concealment. Matt, you are not lying when you don't reveal everything you know, right? Uh, in fact, uh, there is a book that I talk about quite a bit on this program. It's a very helpful book. It's called When Critics Ask. Actually, the new title of it is The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. The original title was When Critics Ask. It was written by my co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser, and another seminary professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary, Thomas Howe. By the way, a great place to get a education, ses.edu forward slash Frank. If you go to ses.edu forward slash Frank, you will uh, see the scholarship that uh, someone has provided there under my name for some reason. Uh, you can actually get half off your tuition if you go to ses.edu forward slash Frank. Anyway, in this book, uh, when critics ask, again, now called the big book of Bible difficulties, uh, here is... Uh, is what they say about this passage. And there are about 800 different passages they go through that people have questions on. So I highly recommend you get the big book of Bible difficulties. Anyway, here's the problem. Abraham was judged by God for telling the half-truth that Sarah was his sister. She was his half-sister when she was really his wife. And this is from Genesis chapter 12 when when. Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. A lot of people go to Egypt, you know. <laughs> uh, Abraham goes to Egypt. Of course, Israel goes to Egypt. Jesus goes to Egypt. There's a pattern there. Anyway, uh, it says, however, in this passage, 1 Samuel 16, which we just read, God actually encourages Samuel to tell only half of the truth, namely that he had come to offer a sacrifice when he had also come to anoint David king as well. So two problems emerge from this. First, did not God encourage deception here? And second, why did God condemn Abraham for the same thing that he commanded Samuel to do? Now here's the solution, according to Geisler and Howe. The first thing to note in response to this problem is that the two situations are not the same. In Abraham's case, his so-called half-truth was really a whole lie. For the question he was asked is, or his the question he was asked was, is Sarah your wife? And his answer, in effect, was really, uh, no, she is my sister. 
by this answer to the question, Abraham intentionally misrepresented the facts of the situation, which is a lie. Samuel's case was different. The question was asked, uh, is why have you come to Bethlehem? His answer was, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. This was truthful in that it corresponded with the facts. Namely, it is why he came and it is what he did. The fact that he also had another purpose for coming is not directly related to the question he was asked and the answer he gave as it was in Abraham's case. Of course, had Samuel been asked, do you have any other purpose for coming? Then he would have had to come clean and say no. Uh, to say no would have been a deception. Secondly, concealment and deception are not the same. Samuel certainly concealed one of the purposes of his mission so as to save his life. It is not always necessary, even possible, to tell all the truth. In fact, or the fact that God told Samuel to conceal one of the purposes of his visit to avoid possible death does not necessarily mean he was guilty of lying. No telling or uh, not telling part of the truth and telling a falsehood are not necessarily the same. Secrecy and concealment are not the same as duplicity and falsehood. And you may say, oh, they're splitting hairs, splitting hairs there. Well, you may say that, but think about it in your own life. You know, if, uh, if uh, someone says, you know, why did you go on that trip? You might have five reasons you went on, but you might say, well, we just needed to get away. Yeah, that's true. But you also went there to see your relatives when you went on that trip. And you also went there to, to go to Ikea because you don't have one in your town and you wanted some Spanish furniture, right? Or Spanish, Spanish, Swedish furniture, Spanish. What the heck am I thinking about? Anyway, <laughs> Spanish. Anyway, that you, you don't, you don't reveal all, certainly when you're in negotiations, you don't reveal all the truth. You're not lying, but you're you're revealing some of the truth, not all of the truth. There's a difference between between lying and not telling or or concealing some of what you know. And in most cases, you can't tell people all the truth. If your husband or your wife asks you how you feeling, you might say fine, or you might say, well, I've got a pain here, a pain there, but. You might not reveal every pain you have or every issue that you have. It's not lying when you you don't reveal all the truth. And so Samuel didn't. Now, by the way, uh, Mike Winger over there at Bible Thinker, who does some great podcasts, as you may know, just did one on four ways God lied. Now, he, of course, doesn't think God lied. He goes through four different passages. This was not one of them, by the way. Four different passages where people say, oh, God lied here. And Mike gives a reasonable answer as to why, no, God didn't lie. Remember Augustine's, uh, Augustine's dictum. If you think you found an error or a problem in the Bible, there are really three possibilities. Number one, you have a bad manuscript. Now, in Augustine's day, that was possible. Today, it's less possible because we have so many manuscripts now, we can pretty much reconstruct the original. But that was his first possibility. The second problem is you have a bad translation. And sometimes the translation may be wrong. That's why you ought to check different translations. Or it may not be as accurate, let me put it that way, because there's not always a one-to-one -one correspondence when you're trying to translate from, say, Greek to English or Hebrew to English, and, and there's some nuance involved. And so different translators will translate the same word differently. In fact, Mike was talking about a word in Jeremiah where Jeremiah said, the Lord deceived me. That word could also be translated persuaded me. 
So how do you take it? Well, you got to look at the context and figure it out. And Mike, uh, Mike's conclusion was that uh, persuasion was the better translation. Mike Winger's in, in that, in that uh, podcast he did, Four Ways God Lied. So you may want to go over there and check that out. So, and then the third thing, by the way, I'm going back to Augustine's, Augustine's dictum about when you think you found an error in the Bible, either the manuscript's wrong, the translation's faulty, or number three, this is probably the biggest one, you simply have not understood. That's the issue, I think, here. Because when you look at it in context and you look at it philosophically, you realize, okay, God isn't lying. He's just not, he's, he's telling Samuel, you don't have to tell, you don't have to reveal everything. When they ask you, did you come in peace? He said, yeah, I came in peace. I came to sacrifice, which is true. He certainly didn't come to kill anybody. That's certainly true. So you don't have to reveal everything in every conversation. That's not a lie that you haven't exhaustively told everybody everything that you're thinking about or every reason that you came to a certain place. So get this book, the big book of Bible difficulties. It will help you in this regard. Those are the, remember, the three, faulty translation, or sorry, faulty, faulty, faulty manuscript, which probably isn't a real issue nowadays. Second, faulty translation. Third, you just have not understood. And for me, look, the Bible's a complicated book. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of history behind it. There's culture that I, I don't completely understand because I'm not living in that culture. There's many different things that need to be considered before you say, I unequivocally have found a problem and an error here. So do some research before you, you say, I, I'm, certain, I'm, I'm certain this is a problem. I'm certain this is an error. All right. Question from Christy comes in and says, hi, Dr. Frank. I am a Christian. I was born again in the late 80s or early 90s. However, I backslid for many years and I'm just getting close to my savior again. Unfortunately, my daughters were never really talked into it. She's referring to the intro of the show where I say a lot of young people uh, are talked out of it because they've never been talked into it. They've never been given the evidence that it's true. She goes on to say, and now I'm writing to you because I'm fearful, fearful for the souls of my children and grandchildren. My granddaughter just turned 19, and I think she may think she is bisexual. I prayed about it, and I'm not sure what else to do. They all know my feelings on the subject. I know you're using the word colloquial here, but it really should be your feelings don't matter here, Christy, but the facts do, but I, I get what you're saying. So it does not come up around me, and I live 550 miles from them. Can you help me with how I will pray for her or how I should pray for you? Thank you for your time. Well, it's a, it's a tough issue, Christy. First of all, as Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray for a soft heart. Pray that your, your, is it your daughter here or granddaughter? Uh, your granddaughter just turned 19, thinks she's bisexual. Pray that she would guard her heart rather than follow her heart. Remember, I think the second most important verse in the Bible to this new generation today, the younger generation, actually comes from the Old Testament, which is Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Notice it doesn't say follow your heart. It says guard your heart. You can't, you can't follow your heart without moral restraint. If you do, you're going to wind up broken, addicted, and probably prematurely dead. You must guard your heart 
We have a lot of different directions our heart can take us in. And we can't follow our heart indiscriminately without moral restraint. We've done programs on this before. It's in the book, Hollywood Heroes. It's also in the book, uh, Correct Not Politically Correct, if you want further on that. Also, pray for wisdom. James says, pray for wisdom. Pray for God's will. Notice that we're not really to pray for our will, but for that God's will would be done. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He says to pray for thy will be done. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Not my will, thy will. In fact, Jesus himself said, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, take it away. But if, if it can't be taken away, if I have to go to the cross, in effect, if I have to go to the cross, in effect, then not my will, but thy will. Pray for patience. God has it. We need it. And here we are, I know, Christy, not to be too hard on you, but look at your own situation. You said you were you were saved in the, let's say, 30 years or so ago, and then you fell away. You backslid for many years. Um, why do you think your daughter or your granddaughters should be right where you are right now? When you weren't even, you weren't even a believer 30 years ago, maybe at her age. Why should we expect everyone to agree with us now when we didn't agree with us 20 or 30 years ago? This is why I always say, like, on a college campus, I don't get upset with kids that don't agree with me. Why would I expect a 21-year-old to disagree with me, a 61-year-old? Why? I, I didn't, I, when I was 21, I didn't agree with my 61-year-old self. And this is why Paul says, I was an insolent and arrogant man, but God showed me favor. God was patient with me. We're all on some place in our spiritual journey. We're either moving toward Jesus or away from Jesus. Sometimes in the same day, we're moving toward him and away from him. And we shouldn't expect everybody to be like us as we are right now. And there are people closer to Jesus than we are right now. Why aren't we where they are? So I know it's frustrating. I know we can get impatient, but continue to pray. Also, pray that you and your granddaughter grow closer to Christ through this, even if she goes through difficulty. And I, by the way, I may ask her some questions like, what do you mean by bisexual? Well, why do you think that's true? Do feelings always tell you the truth? Do feelings ever change? Well, your feelings certainly have. You you know, five years ago, you weren't bisexual. Now you are now. Why? What changed? Do you think your feelings may change again? I mean, we talk this, we talk about this in the context of transgenderism. 80% of young people have these feelings that they're the opposite sex prior to 18 grow out of it by the time they hit 18 because feelings change, hearts change. So don't give up hope, but ask questions of your granddaughter if you can it's better than making statements many times asking questions get them to try and support why they think what they're doing is a good thing so i hope that helps christy i know it's a tough situation but take heart i mean you backslid for a while and you came back right maybe you're granddaughter will do as well. Just keep praying and keep asking good questions. Keep, keep 
keeping the lines of communication open. And you can also ask the question, as you know, I always ask, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? She may be adamantly against that right now. She may be completely rejecting God because she wants to go in a different direction. Fine, but at least asking the question reveals that both to you and to her, that she's not even open to reason. And if there's one thing that can cloud your reasoning is sexual sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, and many of you listening to me right now know it's true because you see other people with blindness when they're involved in sexual sin. You might not be able to see it in yourself, but when you're involved in sexual sin, suddenly your judgment seems to go away. And Paul talks about this when he says that we're given over to futile thinking and ultimately a depraved mind. So they may not be able to see it now, but sexual sin can make them blind, especially when you see people they're involved in a, some sort of illicit relationship and going, what are you doing? What, what are you, you know this is crazy. You know this isn't going to work long term. You know you're walking off the edge of a cliff. What are you doing? And they can't see it or they refuse to see it. They don't want to see it. They want to go their own way. That's why you need to ask the question, if it were true, if Jesus really is God, would you follow him? Would you obey him? Many times the answer is no. That's when reason isn't the reason. Emotion and will is. Remember, you got mind, emotion, and will. We're not just walking computers. Yeah, we have a mind. Yeah, we have an intellect. But often, emotion and will will cause us to go in the opposite direction of our intellect. So keep praying. Keep asking the good questions. All right, Timothy writes in and says, if Jesus refers to God as his father, and God refers to Jesus as his son, how can Jesus be God? Great question. You know, there is another great resource I want to tell you about. Many of you know it already. It's called Got Questions. And if you were to type that exact phrase into Google, you would come up with that with the answer, Timothy. They, they have a real concise answer here. I'll read it to you. Uh, and I, I agree with this. Uh, this is the Got Questions uh, website that answers the question about uh, how could Jesus be God if he's called the Son of God? So let's take a look what the folks there at God Questions say. And you may not agree with everything they say, obviously, but I, I found them pretty orthodox here. Here's what they say. Jesus is not God's son in the sense of a human father and a son. God did not get married and have a son. God did not mate with Mary and together with her produce a son. Let me stop right here. I once had a discussion with a Muslim imam on this, and he really thought that the Trinity was God having sex with Mary, yielding Jesus, that that was the Trinity, that God had a physical relationship with Mary and yielded Jesus. So the members of the Trinity were God, Mary, and Jesus. Now, obviously, that's not the Christian viewpoint, but that's what he thought. Anyway, this goes on to say, Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God made manifest in human form. In other words, this is me, not, not God questions. When we say Jesus is God's son, God is, Jesus is the epitome of God. In fact, it, it goes on to say, here's what the article says. Jesus is God's son in that he was conceived by Mary, by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit, or Luke declares in 135, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born 
So the Holy One to be born would be called the Son of God. This also, this is me again, reflects back on Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says that a child will be born and he will be called Mighty God. All right, back to the article. During his trial before the Jewish leaders, the high priest demanded of Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is Matthew 26, 63. Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Jewish leaders responded by accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Why would they accuse him of blasphemy when he just said he was the Son of God and the Son of Man? Because both those terms meant he was divine. That's why. In fact, if you go to uh, Daniel 9, no, sorry, Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a divine figure. And so when Jesus says he's the Son of Man, he's saying he's a divine figure. Okay, back to the uh, article. Later, before Pontius Pilate, the Jews insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God, John 19, 7. Why would his claiming to be the Son of God be considered blasphemy and worthy of a death sentence? The Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus meant by the phrase Son of God. To be the Son of God is to be of the same nature as God. The Son of God is of God. The claim to be of the same nature as God to, in fact, be God was blasphemy to the Jewish leaders. Therefore, they demanded Jesus' death in keeping with Leviticus 24. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 expressly or expresses this very clearly. Here's the passage I was thinking of earlier. It says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So when you're looking at Jesus in human flesh, you're seeing the exact representation of God, of, of God in human form. The article goes on to say another example can be found in John 17, 12, where Judas is described as the son of perdition. John 6, 71 tells us that Judas was the son of Simon. What does John 7... 12 mean by describing Judas as the son of perdition. The word perdition means destruction, ruin, waste. Judas was not the literal son of ruin, destruction, and waste, but those things were the identity of Judas's life. Judas was the manifestation of perdition. In this same way, Jesus is the son of God. The son of God is God. Jesus is God made manifest. And if you read, of course, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word is God. And it goes on to say, and the word became flesh. So yes, Jesus is God and the son of God is a phrase that meant Jesus to be God. Now, of course, we understand God to be a trinity, three persons in one divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're one being with three persons, three centers of consciousness. There's one essence to God, his divine nature, but three persons. Now, of course, Jesus has two natures. He has the divine nature that he shares with the Father and the Son, but he also has a human nature, which he doesn't share with anyone else. So whenever you ask a question about Jesus, you always, ha always have to ask two questions. Did Jesus know when he was coming back as God? Yes, as man, no. Did Jesus get hungry as God? No, as man, yes. Did Jesus get tired as man? Yes, as God? No. You always have to ask two questions because he had two natures. His divine nature was completely God. His human nature was completely human. So it's a great question, Timothy. Thanks for the question. Go to gotquestions.com uh, and type 
in any one of a number of questions, you'll get a pretty succinct answer. I thought that was a pretty good answer from the folks there at God Questions. Also get the book when critics ask. Now again, it's called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. That will help quite a bit. And also let me mention, we've got some great online courses coming up. Why can't you be normal just like me? If you take that course, you're going to get an, a personality profile, the DISC personality profile. I used to use this a lot when I was doing corporate training many years ago. Very intuitive, very helpful. It helps you understand how people are wired in certain ways, and it helps you be able to adapt to them so you can have a better relationship. That's a really fun course. It'll help you in your marriage, your personal relationships. It'll help you in evangelism. That's what we concentrate on in this course, so check that out. It's a very short course. It's only one Zoom session, but it's very helpful, very fun. And then uh, on August 14th, we're starting Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. There may be an early bird special. I'm not sure about that, but go to crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. You will see it there. Also want to mention at the end of this month, I'm going to be out in Albuquerque, New Mexico at Calvary Church. That's where Skip Heisek is the pastor. Myself and Elisa Childers will be doing uh, kind of a joint sermon Q&A uh, that Sunday morning. It's going to be right after uh, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy that we're holding out there at the Calvary Chapel out there in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So check that all out. It is on our website. Uh, the date for that actually is July 30th. Of course, CIA is July 27th to the 29th. Uh, there may be one or two seats left. If you want to avail yourself of attending CIA, you better like, you better apply right now uh, because we're we're coming up on two weeks out. So check all that out at crossexamine.org. And Lord willing, I will see. Oh, I got to tell you that this Friday on the podcast and the radio program, we're going to have Titus Kennedy on, the archaeologist, and we're going to look at the evidence from Jericho, which, of course, is where the Israelites marched around the city seven times. And allegedly, according to the Bible, the walls fell down and uh, after just blowing the trumpet. Is, is, is there any evidence uh, that there was a destruction at the time frame for the exodus from Jericho, and that's what archaeologist Titus Kennedy is going to investigate. You're not going to want to miss that program. Check it out. We'll be here. It'll probably post Friday. It'll air Saturday on the American Family Radio Network and Sunday afternoon as well. So I hope to see you there, and I'll see you here then. God bless.